are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. So pleased you could join us. If we haven't been introduced before, my name is David Guzik. Uh, I'm a pastor, even though I'm no longer pastoring over a congregation. Uh, I'm a Bible teacher. And some people know me from my Bible commentary. I have an online commentary through the entire Bible that some people find helpful. Anyway, uh, thank you for coming to our Q&A today. And I'm sorry for the late start. I have zero idea what the technical problems were and are getting started. But it doesn't really matter because it's uh, all behind us now and now that we're on, even though it was just a couple of minutes late. So thank you for joining us. Last Thursday, I wasn't able to be here live with you because I was on an airplane flying back east to Philadelphia. And there in the Kensington neighborhood of downtown Philly, uh, we were with the great people at the Rock Ministries. Uh, Buddy, Craig, Kevin, the whole crew there, And man, what an excellent ministry. Folks, if you want to get behind an amazing ministry that's doing a great work in the inner city, I highly recommend you the Rock Ministries of Philadelphia. Uh, They're in the Kensington neighborhood of Philadelphia. So God bless you, folks in the Rock. And uh, thanks for all your wonderful hospitality for the time that I was there. And uh, it's wonderful to be here now and back with you. Okay, so our lead question for today is simply this. Is the Bible literally true? Is the Bible literally true? Folks, there's a lot of people who have different opinions on this and who are actually confused about this. So let me give you just a very simple uh, way to talk about this. Is the Bible literally true? Okay, let me just say, we come to the Bible believing that it's the place where God has spoken to man. God has spoken to man perfectly in the Bible. He's spoken comprehensively to man in the Bible. You see, we believe what is written in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. We believe this, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. We believe that. Now, uh, we also understand that we believe that the Bible must be understood literally. Should the Bible be understood literary? Absolutely so. Friends, how else could the Bible be understood? If everything in the Bible is a symbol if everything in the Bible is metaphorical, if everything in the Bible has some law, non-literal uh, meaning that anybody could or should just read into it, then it just becomes a book of nonsense. We believe that the Bible must be understood literally, and let me define that, straightforward and true according to its literary context. See, we understand that the Bible is much more than a book. It's a library of books. And they are books written in different literary forms. And even within a book, you can have some different literary forms. 
You see, some portions of the Bible give a historical account. This is what happened in the life of David. It's a historical account. Others are poetic. You have the life of David recorded in the scriptures, 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 Chronicles. You also have the poetry of David recorded in the Psalms. Dealing with the same person, but different literary genres, literary forms. You have historical, poetic, prophetic. Some people would throw in there a form that they call apocalyptic. Now, we must understand the Bible literary. Literally, I would say, again, as straightforward and true according to its literary context. Let me give you an example of this. Uh, When David wrote in Psalm 6, verse 6, All night I make my bed swim, I drench my couch with tears. Do you see that verse? (laughs) When David wrote that, he used a poetic literary form. We understand that he didn't literally mean that he cried so much that he flooded his room and set his bed afloat. His bed did not literally swim upon tears. Yet when David writes, let me just show you that verse again, all night I make my bed swim, I drench my couch with tears, we understand exactly what he was saying. Is it true? Absolutely it's true. It's true poetry. Was it true historically? No, but it was true poetically. Uh, Here's uh, the, the simple truth that we come to. We can trust that the Bible means what it says. I'll give you one verse that I'd love to quote about this. Psalm 119, verse 28. Therefore, all your precepts concerning all things, I consider to be right. You see, with great confidence, the psalmist proclaimed the inerrancy of God's word. Concerning all things, it's right. Friends, let me tell you something about the Bible. It's right and not wrong. And the Bible is right concerning all things. Let me put it to you this way. When the Bible gives us history, it is right and true. The events actually happened as they are described. When the Bible gives us poetry, it is right and true. The feelings and the experiences were real for the writer, and they ring true to human experience. When the Bible gives us prophecy, it is right and true. The events were fulfilled, just as is written, or the events will be fulfilled just as it is written. When the Bible gives us instruction, it is right and true. It truly does tell us the will of God and the best way of life. And when the Bible tells us about God, it is right and true. It reveals to us what the nature and heart and mind of God are, or at least as much as we can comprehend. So friends, do we understand the Bible literally? Yes, according to its literary context. Now, if we don't approach the Bible this way, then we can come to the Bible only 
with how we feel about the text. And we decide what is true or what is false about the text. We therefore make ourselves greater than the Bible text itself. You see, friends, the teachings of Scripture have many applications, many applications, but only one true interpretation. Sometimes the interpretation is easy to discern. Sometimes it's not. But God meant something with the text as it's revealed to mankind. When it comes to the book of Genesis, I like what Henry Morris said in his commentary, The Genesis Record. He said this, The proper way to interpret Genesis 1 is not to interpret it at all. That is, we accept the fact that it was meant to say exactly what it says. You see, therefore, when even though the Bible is not a book of science, where it speaks about science, it speaks the truth. If the Bible is false in regard to science or other things that can be proven, then we can't regard it as reliable in regard to spiritual matters that we cannot objectively prove. Now, let me go over this just one more time. Yes, we understand the Bible literally as straightforward and true according to its literary context or literary form. Now, let let me just say this. We're getting to the end of this pretty quick. Sometimes the literary form of the text is disputed, or sometimes it isn't clear. You look at a passage and you say, is this passage history or is it poetry? Was this a literal description or a figure of speech? These are valid questions. You know, when we say that two people met, or let's say two sport teams met head to head, we understand that they didn't literally knock their heads together, but it was just a one-on-one or team against team competition head-to-head. It's something we use all the time in the English language. When we say that something must stay on track, we understand that we don't literally mean that it's something like a railway car or a streetcar that has to remain on its rails. It just has to keep going the way that it's going. So when Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, It should be understood that he used a rabbinic figure of speech of his day uh, that could refer to any part of a night or a day. This is in the rabbinic literature of the general era. And when Jesus told the rich young ruler to sell everything he had, to give his money to the poor and to follow Jesus, that's in Mark chapter 10, it should be understood that he spoke this specific command to this specific man. Listen, I I see it from time to time. Maybe you do too. They say, oh, will you believe the Bible literally? Well, why don't you sell everything you have, give to the poor, and then follow Jesus in some way? And this would be a simple response. Say, Jesus definitely gave that command, and he literally meant it, but Jesus did not give that as a general command to every one of his followers. He spoke that specific command to one specific man. It was not a general command given to all the followers of Jesus. Matter of fact, there were men specifically described as being rich who were followers of Jesus to whom Jesus did not give this command. So when the person just kind of stands back and again, they fold their arms, oh, well, you believe the Bible literally, why don't you do it? No, 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 we absolutely believe it literally. 
we're, we're trying to understand it in its literary context. So, it isn't always easy to detect every use of hyperbole, poetic exaggeration, figures of speech, commands that were given to individuals and not to everybody, and all the rest of it. Even accounting for that, the only way to understand the Bible is to understand it literally. It says what it means, and it means what it says. Hope that's helpful for you. Uh, before we head on and start taking a look at our um, questions that come in on the live chat, let me give a hearty greeting to our TWR360 audience. Transworld360, we're so grateful for our partnership with them. They're a wonderful ministry who's been doing a work for a long time, and we're just grateful for the work that God does in and through them. Uh, thanks, anybody from the TWR360 website who's joining us today. Thank you very much for that. Okay, um, let me get to the questions here. Uh, Brian asks this question. What is the best fulfilled prophecy in the Bible to share with an unbeliever with the goal of helping them to believe that the Bible is true? Brian, it's a very good question. You know, there's some very complicated uh, prophecies that are specifically fulfilled. Uh, for example, in Daniel chapters 10 and 11, describing the rise of these kingdoms that would take the place of Alexander the Great and, and how they would affect the Jewish people in the promised land. Matter of fact, those passages are so prophetically correct and exact that liberal scholars say, humph, must have been written after the fact, because there's no way that anybody could have fulfilled those things. Well, again, that's not true. Uh, there's also an amazing passage. Man, I forget where it is in Isaiah. It comes to my mind, Isaiah chapter 14, but I, I would have to look into his research. There's a prophecy in Isaiah about Tyre and Sidon that is fulfilled so, you know, exactly. But the problem with the Tyre and Sidon prophecy in uh Isaiah or the Grecian Empire prophecy in uh, Daniel 10 and 11 is they are admittedly they're complicated they're so intricate I would stick to the prophecies regarding the coming of Jesus Christ birth in Bethlehem ministry among the poor especially death as it's described in Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22. Resurrection as it's described in many passages. That's what comes to my mind, Brian. The fulfilled prophecies regarding uh, the ministry, the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. And here's kind of the thing you can operate on. If these uh, prophecies were so specifically fulfilled about the first coming of Jesus... And if Jesus himself made prophecies regarding who he was and his second coming, shouldn't we pay attention to those? Shouldn't we believe them? So, Brian, that, that's what I would say. I would say specifically focus in on the messianic prophecies because there's so many of them. They're so marvelously fulfilled. And it just gives you an opportunity to go to the New Testament and the Gospels specifically and see how well that these were presented. Thank you for that, Brian. Next question comes from Adonis. Here's the question. Sir Lancelot Charles Lee Brenton said, 
Some of the translators of the Septuagint were by no means competent to the task. How reliable is his commentary on the Septuagint? Okay, um, Adonis, look, I'm speaking to you from my very general knowledge of this. I don't have any specific, I haven't done a deep dive of research on the reliability of the Septuagint translation. Uh, For those of you who, who aren't familiar with this terminology, one of the first and most important books that was translated and published widely in another language were the Hebrew scriptures. The Hebrew scriptures taken from Hebrew were translated into Greek a couple hundred years before the birth of Jesus Christ. And what Adonis is asking about is he's run across a commentator who's commentating on the Septuagint and says that the people who translated the Septuagint didn't do a very good job. Well, I just simply know, Adonis, through my own New Testament studies, that I have certainly run across one or two places where people have a problem with the Septuagint translation. And um, because they have a problem with it, uh, maybe because it was think it was too loose, too narrow, whatever it was, that they um, consider it not to be a good translation. It wouldn't surprise us if the Septuagint was not a great translation. Now, it is great in the sense that it is historical, that it was a great accomplishment, uh, that it served a marvelous purpose by being or providing the Bible for the New Testament church. When the New Testament church read the Hebrew scriptures, they largely did not read them in Hebrew. They read them in Greek, and the Greek was the Septuagint. Matter of fact, uh, I've got here, I think it's on a thing over there. Let me just look behind me to see if I see it quickly. And I don't see it quickly. I have a translation of the Septuagint. I'm looking over on some other shelves, and maybe it's over there. I have a translation of the Septuagint in Greek. In other words, it takes the Greek of the Septuagint and translates it into English. And I, my estimation, again, and Adonis, this is just based on very general knowledge, that as a translation, the Septuagint is more important for its place in history than it is for the greatness or the exactness of its translation of the Hebrew. Nevertheless, God used it And especially he used it as the Bible most commonly used by the New Testament church. Hope that's helpful for you there, Adonis. Next question comes from Texas, who asks, What book in the Bible is the best place to start, in particular for a person needing direction in a financial crisis? Also, what translation of the Bible does the Enduring Word website use? Okay, Texas, let me give you a couple responses. First of all, what Bible translation do we use? We use the New King James Version. Now, look, I think that there's a lot of good Bible translations out there. Um, I know that there's some people who like uh, the ESV. I know there's people who like the Old King James. I know there's some people who like the NIV. I know there's some people who like the more recently done Legacy Standard Bible, Legacy Standard Version. Uh, There's a lot of good trends. The the New American Standard is an old classic. Uh, There's a lot of good Bible translations out there. I prefer the New King James for several reasons. 
One reason is, is I do like Bible translations that don't ignore the Texas Receptus. I'm not saying that the textual tradition behind the old King James Bible is right on every occasion. No, not at all. But I don't want that textual tradition to be ignored in biblical translation. Number two, I think that the King James and the New King James are just written with a brilliant poetic simplicity. Maybe because it's the Bible translation I've been studying so intensely for so many years, but I think that it's memorable. I think it sticks in the mind. I think it's use of so many simple, short, clear words is very helpful. I just find for myself, the New King James Version sticks in my mind better than many other Bible translations. Um, I think it has a poetic flavor to it that's missing in some otherwise good modern Bible translations. So those are some of the reasons why uh, the Enduring Word Bible Commentary, by the way, if you're interested in the Bible commentary, it's at EnduringWord.com. And uh, I've got some great news. Uh, We have a free app. I don't know if you've ever seen the Enduring Word app, uh, but it's really spectacular. Um, The Enduring Word app is just something that you can take a look at and get on your phone. It's uh, available absolutely free, uh, and there's nothing you'd have to pay later on. We don't have any in-app purchases or anything like that. But uh, it's just an outstanding um, delivery of our Bible commentary. And what's really cool to me about the app is in October, October just ended two days ago, in October... For the first month ever, we had more page views on our app than we did on our main website, which I'm kind of thrilled about because the people who are working with our app right now put so much heart, so much love, so much effort into that whole work. I think it's amazing that now, at least last month, our app page views have exceeded our website, or at least our normal English website page views. Praise the Lord for that. Okay. Anyway, what I want to get back to is the other part of Texas's question. Uh, What's the best place to start in particular for a person needing direction in a financial crisis? Well, I'd recommend, um, how about this, Texas? I'd recommend the book of Philippians to you. Philippians, first of all, is a book about joy, how to have joy in any circumstance. And when we're pressured financially, we need the joy of God. But it needs to be understood that the Philippian church was very generous with Paul. And it speaks a lot of how God promised blessing and provision to believers who did not neglect generosity. So Texas, let's just say that. Let's just say, uh, begin with uh, the book of Philippians. But it's also a great thing to do. Just start going through the Gospels. And making a notation, either write it in your Bible, write it in a notebook, every place where the Bible, uh, or where Jesus talks about money, it's going to be more than you think. So I hope that's helpful for you there, Texas. Let me go on to the next question here from Susan. Susan asks, hi, Pastor David, I believe the Bible is God's word and true from front to back. Praise the Lord. My question is, how can we defend the Bible without saying the Bible says? 
Is that even possible? Well, Susan, there's some defense we can make of the Bible without referring to the Bible. I would say this, objectively speaking, in other words, not referring to the Bible, but just looking at it from the outside in, objectively speaking, the Bible is the most influential book that has ever been written in the world. There's nothing that has influenced the Western world, and because the Western world has influenced the rest of the world more than the rest of the world has influenced the Western world, there's no other book that has had the kind of influence upon the world as the Bible. The Bible is a remarkable book for its continuity. It's remarkable that it speaks with one voice about remarkably controversial subjects uh, written by people in many different lands. The, the Bible is remarkable. It can be proven objectively that the Bible is a remarkable, unique, the most special book ever written or published yet. I mean, let's just say theoretically, somebody could come up with a greater book than the Bible, but that's only theoretically. It's never going to happen. But I'll just say simply this. Every person should read the Bible front to, co uh, front to back, Genesis to Revelation. They should read it even if they're not a believer. Even if they're a stone-cold atheist, they should read the Bible because the Bible has influenced the world more than any other book. Now, all that's objective. As far as it being God's word, look, we can say that it takes a step of faith to believe that the Bible is God's word. But notice the phrasing I use there, Susan. I didn't say it takes a leap of faith. I think it merely takes a step of faith. Uh, my trust in the Bible is not some blind leap of faith. My trust in the Bible comes from the knowledge that it is the most unique, powerful book ever written, and that God has used it mightily, mightily uh, throughout the centuries. So I hope that's helpful for you, Susan. Then get, get back to another question here from Daughter of the King. Daughter of the King asks this question. I agree that the word is literal, but don't we need to acknowledge who the scriptures were for? A absolutely, daughter. Th that's understanding it according to its context. So when God spoke to Israel, he spoke to Israel, but sometimes God spoke to Israel in a very general sense, as he might speak to any believer. And other times, God spoke to Israel in a very narrow sense, particular to them as a nation. And this is why we do need to understand the context. So, daughter of the king, I agree with you absolutely. We understand the Bible literally according to its literary context. And uh, th that's a great thing for everybody to be aware of. And I'm very glad that you shared that. Thank you for that, daughter of the king. Next question comes from Godchild55. Here we go. Regarding Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, humanity was added to Christ's nature. He did not become less as God. Please clarify how this does not merit a change in the personhood of Christ to align with Hebrews 13, 8. Uh, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Okay, well, first of all, uh, Godchild, you're very correct, and I'm happy for the way that you phrase this. 
that we should understand the incarnation not as subtraction, not that something was taken away from the divine nature of Jesus. We should understand it as addition. Something was added to the divine nature of Jesus. Humanity was added to deity. That's what happened in the incarnation. So I'm glad that you're clear on that. But then you say, was this a change? Okay, it was a change, but it was not a change in the deity of Jesus Christ. I want you to think of that verse that you quoted, and I'm glad that you quoted it. Hebrews chapter 13, starting at verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, if you're considering this verse regarding the humanity of Jesus, there is some sense in which it's not true. What do I mean by that? Well, think about it just for a moment here. <laughs> God child, think about it in this sense. Hold on, let me take a drink here. Okay, thank you. Uh, think about it in this sense, that Jesus was a little baby, then he was a toddler, then he was a boy, then he was an older boy, then he was a teenager, then he was a young man, then he was a fully developed man. If you look at a fully developed man, somebody when they're 30 years old, and compare them to when they were three years old, you would say, they've changed. No, nothing's changed in them genetically, but at least their outward appearance has changed. What I'm just getting here is that statement in Hebrews focuses on the deity of Jesus Christ. And in his deity, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He grew, he matured, he learned in his humanity, but he remains the same in his deity. Now, by the way, now being resurrected and glorified, Jesus remains the same in his humanity as well. But that was not true of him, humanly speaking, in regard to his humanity during his earthly life, during his ministry. So uh, that's really how I would explain it, God child. The, the two things don't contradict because uh, a statement like Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8, is speaking to Jesus in reference to his deity, not in reference fundamentally to his humanity. There was a time when God the Son, the Son of God, did not have humanity added to his deity. Uh, but there came a time in the incarnation when God uh, engineered that, God planned that, God executed that as part of his unfolding plan of the ages. And uh, then it was different. And by the way, Jesus remains the God-man. Remember what it says in Timothy, there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus did not yield his humanity when he ascended to heaven. No, he retains his humanity. He remains for all eternity, truly God and truly man. Thank you for that question there, God child. Next question comes from Chris, who asks, Hi, Pastor David. Do you think it's wrong or sinful for churches to have trunk or treats for Christians to let their children go trick-or-treating as long as costumes aren't scary. Chris, I believe that this is a matter left up to the individual Christian conscience. I don't think that this is something that some Protestant pope could pronounce something uh, that would be binding upon all of Christendom. 
or at least all Protestant Christendom, and say, this is how it's going to be. Uh, if a parent thinks this isn't good for my children, this isn't good for my family, I would just say to that parent, I respect your decision. God bless you. Do as you please. If another parent says, hey, my kids like dressing up and they like the candy and we're not filling it with all this occultic demon stuff, fine. Do as you believe that God gives liberty in either situation. And I think that liberty extends also to churches. If churches want to have a harvest festival or a trunk or treat or something like that, that would be up to the individual churches. So, Chris, I hope that answers. This is just one of those things that since I don't think there's a specific biblical command about it, that it's left to individual Christian conscience or the conscience of a particular individual church. Okay, next question comes from He's Returning Soon. I like that screen name. He is returning soon. Writes this. If a sister in Christ baptized a new believer... And it was not in a formal church setting, but in the open, a pool or ocean. Is this face commendable? She didn't know about leadership structure or out of order and need to be repeated. Who? Okay. He is returning soon. I don't see in the Bible where it's commanded that baptisms must be performed by particular individuals, such as church officers, pastors, deacons. There's a long tradition of that in Christianity, absolutely so. But I don't see in the Bible where that is commanded. As far as I can tell, any Christian can baptize another Christian. I don't see it as being restricted to church officers. Now, again, I know I would get a lot of pushback from many people about that, especially those who emphasize baptism as an entrance ceremony into the family of God. And they say it has to be done by some church official, pastor, bishop, deacon, elder, whatever, because uh, they're the gatekeeper for who's allowed into the kingdom and who isn't. But I would push back on that idea. I genuinely would. Because I just don't see that presented in the scriptures. Now, once somebody told me that in Matthew chapter 28, where it instructs the disciples to baptize people, baptize and make disciples, they said that there's a construction there in the Greek which either says or implies that those baptisms should be performed by men. Friends, I have not personally researched that. I can't tell you if I would sign off on that, if that's true. But I just want to make you aware that at least I've heard that objection. If that were to be true, it would lend weight to that the idea that normally baptisms should be performed by men, but I would want to get more biblical information on it. As far as I can see here, he is returning soon. There is no specific biblical requirement for somebody to be qualified to be a baptizer. Um, I, I'm just trying to stick to what the scriptures say. And, and to allow believers freedom in Christ for the things that the scriptures don't speak to directly or in clear principle. 
That's just simply what I would say. Hope that's helpful for you there. He is returning soon. Next question from Tunal Banan Shugotre, who asks us, uh, the book of Revelation says that the cowardly will be the first ones to get thrown into the lake of fire. What does John mean with the cowardly in that verse? Well, Tunal Banan Shugotre, I would just simply say that cowardly there would simply mean people who will not stand or sacrifice for what they believe. I think this is kind of one pretty clear definition of cowardly. I don't know if that says everything about cowardly that there is to say, but certainly the cowardly would include those who lack the strength, who lack the ability to stand for what is true, to stand for what is right against opposition. I would make it somewhat analogous to what Jesus said about he who denies me before men, I will deny before my father in heaven. I think you can make a very real analogy between those two kind of statements. So that's simply what I would say. Those who have the lack the courage or the strength to stand for, to sacrifice for what they believe. Hope that's helpful for you there. Uh, next question comes from Anahui, who asks, Jesus was prophesied in the Old Testament. Are those who believed in him in the Old Testament considered the dead in Christ? If not, who are those to be raised up when we, when we now die if we ascend to heaven? 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16. All right, let me read to you that 1 Thessalonians 4.16 says this. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Anyway, I don't think that Old Testament saints are first in view with that statement in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16. It may include them, but they're not the ones first in view. When you take a look at the context there of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul's talking to believers who are worried that their brothers and sisters in their own church, in their own time, who have died, will miss out on the glorious return of Jesus Christ. And Paul writes that very clear statement in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 to tell them, don't worry about it. They will not miss out. And so, uh, no, it, it may conceivably have application to them just in the sense of the general resurrection, because that's part of what's being spoken of there in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. But um, the focus there is on the believing dead that were among the Thessalonians. Now, I don't think for a moment that Paul meant that statement to only apply to the Thessalonians, but he was speaking to the dead in Christ, those who are, um, uh, again, the believing dead from that were of first concern to the Thessalonians. So uh, if the Old Testament faithful are also included under that, they are not first in view with that statement. Hope that helps you there. Next question comes from Janet, who asks, Pastor Guzik, 
kindly expound on Matthew chapter 24, verse 40 to 41. There will be two, one will be taken and the other left. Does it mean rapture, judgment, or what? Thanks again for always enlightening me on scripture. Okay, Janet, um, I'll give it to you straight. And you can look up my commentary just to, to look it up for yourself. But please remember, folks, you got a biblical question. Uh, do not be shy about checking out my commentary at EnduringWord.com. Uh, you can find it there, and uh, hopefully it's helpful for a lot of people. EnduringWord.com. And you could just look up what I have to say there on Matthew chapter 24, verse 40. But I'm happy to give you a little um, hint or preview of that here, Janet. Uh, just simply to say, there are many, many Bible interpreters who automatically assume or make the case that this is a taking away to judgment. It's not a taking away in the catching up, the hapazzo, the, the, the gathering away of the church, what is commonly called the rapture. And I got to say, I just don't see why the text demands that it's this carrying away to judgment and not the catching away of the church described in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I teach it that this describes the catching away of the church uh, in 1 Thessalonians 4, which we commonly call the rapture, the catching away, harpazo, whatever you want to call it. And I'm a little bit of a loss as to why some people are so sure that it, if you think you know, if you can simply explain that in the uh, comments, go ahead. I'll read it later, uh, but I, I'd love to be enlightened as to why that passage must refer to the judgment and can't refer to the catching away of the church. Thank you for that, Janet. That, that's how I see it. Olive asks this question. Concerning the Old and even much of the New Testament in Christ's time, the majority of the verses were spoken to the Jews. How do we know that, how do we know if the verse is applicable to us? Well, that's great. Um, because, listen, uh, it takes a little bit of context to figure it out. But we don't really have a, um, when Jesus preached, okay, no, let me back up here. Let, let me get back to this. Um, Olive, God spoke specifically to the Jewish people throughout the Old Testament, and as you say, in much of the New Testament. The Gospels and the ministry of Jesus as recorded in the Gospels was focused to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. However, God's heart was always to reach the world through what he did with the Jewish people. Remember way back when God made the covenant with Abraham. He said, I'm going to promise you a land. This is in Genesis chapter 12. I'm going to promise you a blessing. And I'm going to promise you a, a land, a nation, and I'm going to promise you a blessing that will extend to every uh, nation, every ethnos, every family on earth. God 
always had the world in mind, even when he was working through the Jewish people. So there are some things that God specifically said, this is for the Jewish people and not for the nations as a whole. But oftentimes, the principles of God's dealing with Israel are no different than his principles of his dealing with all humanity. And I guess that's the best way that I would describe it there in that aspect. Um, So I would say, when God speaks and acts, consider that it's for all humanity, consider that it's for the world, unless there's a compelling reason to restrict it only to Israel. And sometimes there is. Um, The Mosaic Law is a good example of a section where there's compelling reason, especially in some parts of the law, where God is speaking just to Israel and not to the nations as a whole. So, Olive, I hope that's helpful for you. Um, Just always remember that even when God was working with Israel, it was ultimately to work through Israel to reach all the nations of the earth. Okay, next question comes from Ferdinand, who asks, um, how can we interpret or explain Colossians chapter 1, verse 15? He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And here's your question. If Jesus is the firstborn of all, over all creation, does it mean that the Lord was created by his father just like a normal man like us? Ferdinand, that's a great question, but I got an easy answer for this. Um, firstborn in the scriptures is frequently used not as a literal first one out of the womb, but as a title of preference. In biblical culture, the firstborn was always preeminent. The firstborn always had the highest privilege. Therefore, it's very interesting to find that when God gives Jesus the title of firstborn in Colossians, It's not referring to him being first out of the womb or even first created, but rather that he is preeminent over all creation, that Jesus comes first over all creation. Just one example of this. Um, David in the Old Testament was the youngest son of his family. Were there seven or eight older brothers? There was a lot. He was the youngest in his family, yet in the Psalms, God calls David his firstborn. Say, well, wait a minute. David wasn't the firstborn. He was the seventh or eighthborn, eighth or ninthborn, whatever it was. Well, but you get the point here. He was firstborn in the sense of being preferred. It was the preferred position that David had. God chose him and exalted him among his brethren. Therefore, God was totally right in calling him my firstborn. Same thing with Jesus. Firstborn is a reference to his preeminent position over all creation. Thank you for that, Ferdinand. Uh, Next question comes from Mary, who asks, Hello, and thank you for your time. I'm hoping to have answered a question concerning what might be considered replacement theology. Our fellowship has been taught over a couple Sundays that the northern tribes of Israel are lost and have been absorbed by other nations, such as ours in Europe, etc. This seems to be 
a very bad teaching in that God's covenants with Israel are being dismissed at best, and at worst, God doesn't keep his promises. I hope you have time to handle this question, and thank you guys for all you do. Mary, thank you for this. Let me answer this just very straightforwardly, and who knows, maybe I'll make this a lead question and, and give a fuller answer, but let me just give you a direct answer. God's promises of restoration for Israel included not only the southern kingdom of Judah, but the northern kingdom of Israel as well. There are not 10 lost tribes. God knows exactly where they are, and they are in God's plan, and they have a future in God's plan as the Jewish people. Because undeniably, part of the new covenant is the gathering together of Israel in the very last days to gather them together in faith, in belief, in trusting Jesus Christ as their Messiah. God hasn't rejected Israel. He hasn't replaced Israel. They still have a place in his unfolding plan of the ages. And not only the southern kingdom of Judah, but the many passages which speak of God bringing together both the northern kingdom of Israel, that's the kingdom of the ten northern tribes, and the southern kingdom of Judah, that's the two southern tribes, bringing them together as part of the fulfillment of the new covenant. So, Mary, I do think that uh, it's just a wrong answer uh, that they're giving, and this idea sometimes that these ten lost tribes are dispersed, and some people bring it into Anglo-Israelitism and weird stuff like that. There's just no place for it. Okay, thank you for that, Mary. And again, maybe I'll get into that question later on in a deeper way. All right, we've got a lightning round to finish off. <coughs> I need a drink of water here. I need to take on a right mental attitude. We're going to have the uh, lightning round. Thank you, moderator, for bringing that lightning round. Our viewers appreciate it, and I know I appreciate it. Let's get going here. Lightning round. Uh, what's your view on tithing? Yes, God's people should tithe. The principle of tithing is not emphasized in the New Testament. It's present in the New Testament. The principle of giving is emphasized in the New Testament. But uh, tithing is an appropriate measure for giving. And um, I think that God's people should give, in general, 10%. And if they're unable to at the present time, then they should work themselves up to that place where they can give uh, according to that pattern. But here's the point, Margaret. Um, many believers should give more than 10%, and they should not limit themselves to the tithe. So uh, it's clearly commanded of Israel in the Old Testament. It's not emphasized in the New Testament. It's present there in the New Testament. But it's not emphasized. The principle of giving is more emphasized in the New Testament. Thank you for that, Margaret. Next one comes from Sorajia. I hope I'm pronouncing your name correctly. Please forgive me if I'm not. Blessings, Pastor Guzik. How can we answer those who said we do not need to pray for Israel? Sorajia, just say, no, God has a remaining role for Israel in his unfolding plan of the ages. I'm going to pray for them. Please remember that Jesus said that he would not return to the earth. He would not return to Jerusalem until the Jewish people said, 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus Christ is going to return, not to a Christ rejecting Israel, but to a Christ embracing Israel. And um, God will use the events of the very last days to help bring Israel to full faith in Jesus. Their restoration has begun, but it's very incomplete. Uh, So God still has a place for Israel in his unfolding plan of the ages. So, Sarja, you're absolutely right. Pray for Israel. Now, by the way, pray for the people of Gaza as well. You know, as I say this, and I realize that somebody may be looking at this uh, years later, even as I say this, there's a great conflict between Israel and Hamas in Gaza right now. Pray for Hamas. Pray for Gaza. Pray that the believers in Gaza, the Christian believers, would be protected and blessed and would find the strength to oppose the tyrannical Hamas government. Pray for people in Hamas that they would be convicted of their sin and put their trust in Jesus Christ. And pray that God would bring salvation and revival to the people of Gaza. That's what they need so that they can build a productive, fruitful society instead of one that is hell-bent on destroying Israel. So, thank you for that, Soja. Uh, Salman asks, do angels have free will? Because Lucifer chose not to bow down before God and other angels chose to be on his side, do angels have free will now? Okay, Salman, this is what we seem to understand. That at one time, angels or angelic beings had a time to choose. They had a time when they could choose to be faithful to God or they could rebel against God. It seems like, I can't say the scriptures say this, but it seems like that that time for choosing is over. That now um, there's no more time of choosing. That what they've decided is set. Now, by the way, that's true for humanity as well, is it not? Right now is the time of choosing for human beings, but that's not going to last forever. So I, I would just say this, that at one time, angelic beings had a real choice whether or not they would be faithful to God or whether they would rebel against him. But it seems that that time of choosing is over for them, as it will be for the rest of humanity. Uh, Well, not the rest of humanity, the angels, but you know what I mean. Okay, Daughter of the King asks, can you help me not have fear about possibly falling away that the Bible speaks of? I am so worried. Daughter of the King, here's what I want to encourage you with. The mere fact that you're worried about it is tremendous news. Daughter of the king, if you had really turned your back on God, you wouldn't care about falling away. You wouldn't want to have anything to do with him. So just remember, every time that fear rises up within you, daughter of the king, I want a smile to come upon your face to say, because this matters to me, God must be doing a work in my life. Thank you, Lord, for the work you're doing in my life. I hope that's encouraging to you, daughter of the king. Next question comes from Andrea. Andrea who asks, does God condemn sorcery, magic, divination because he agrees these practices have inherent power and accuracy, so humans should not dabble in it? Or does he say that these practices are shams? Uh, Okay, Andrea, Andrea, I, I say both. Much of what goes on in the name of sorcery, magic, divination, much of it is a sham. Look, 
more often than not, when if somebody were to go to a palm reader, don't go to a palm reader. Don't. Don't go to a palm reader. But if someone did, what the palm reader would tell them would be mostly fakery. But if there's any truth to it, it's demonic truth. It's dark truth. So, Andrea, Andrea, I, I would just say it, it could be either one. It could be a sham or it could be demonic. And both of them are reasons to avoid uh, these things that God says believers should not have anything to do with. And Kabbalah, is that demonic and to be avoided? Well, yes, this very bizarre Jewish mysticism, it's not of God at all. So, yes, avoid Kabbalah. It, it, it's just not to be something pursued for the believer. Read your Bible. Don't read the Kabbalistic literature. Uh, and then uh, Janet asks, Pastor Guzik, I've been wondering what happened to Moses' wife and children. I'm made to understand that parenting uh, culminates to good children. Nothing's mentioned of either Gerashom or Eliezer. Uh, well, Janet, um, I think what you're doing here is you're taking no mention to mean something terrible. We know that uh, Moses' children were with him in kind of some of his journeys back and forth uh, to Egypt. There's that terrible thing having to do with the children's circumcision, uh, but th that's sort of a different thing altogether. Um, listen, I, I just think you're thinking that no news must mean bad news. It wasn't a bad thing that the sons of Moses did not take his office if God had not called the sons of Moses to take his office. You see what I mean? So uh, we shouldn't go around thinking that something's bad uh, just because no mention is made of it. Uh, so I, I wouldn't go to the belief. I, I believe that it's probably likely that uh, Moses' wife died in the wilderness and that Moses' sons helped to inherit the promised land. There's no compelling reason to think otherwise. And that's where I would rest on it. Uh, Jay Freer asks, hello, Pastor David from Maine. Hi, my question this week is this. Why was Rahab praised in Joshua chapter two when she used a lie to conceal the spies in Jericho? Okay, Jay Freer, you need to, to, need to bear with me here. Hope I'm not going to shock you. Sometimes lying is the right thing to do. Uh, if somebody, if the people, the, the soldiers in Jericho burst down Rahab's door and say, where are the Jews? She's right to turn them away with a lie. The sin of betraying the Jews, the Israelites, the two spies that came to visit her, would have been worse than the lie of telling a lie to a homicidal murderer. So I, I think we just have to realize, and I, I, I understand, we all understand, we want to say, David, you can't say that because then people are going to lie and justify it. Well, guess what? People are going to lie and justify it anyway. God knows. God does know. So really, that's what it comes down to, is that, in the case of Rahab, for her to betray the Jewish spies would have been a worse sin than the lie to the officials of Jericho who came there looking for him. That's a simple answer I would give. 
Eastward asks this question. Man, moderator, a lot of lightning round questions. Eastward, what resource, non-electronic, for specific word study would you recommend? A BDAG equivalent for somebody who doesn't speak Greek. All right, Eastward, let me look and see. I got something behind me here to show you. I don't because it's in another bookcase. What you want is what's called the Little Kittles. Gerhard Kittle was a editor of a huge set of encyclopedias or dictionaries of exhaustive dictionary of New Testament usage. They have um, uh, abridged his work into one volume. You want the volume known as the Little Kittle. It's a one-volume abridgment of the great uh, theological dictionary of the New Testament. I think that might be what it's called. Uh, most of the time, it has a blue and red cover. So, yeah, just look that up. The Little Kittle, the one-volume abridgment of Kittle's Dictionary of New Testament Words. That would be the best thing for you to get. Uh, Praisey asks, Praise the Lord, Brother Devil, who is King Lemuel? Proverbs 31. Oh, man, you know what? Let's just do this. Let me go to my commentary and look up Proverbs 31 here. Proverbs 31. Um, uh, let me just read to you from the commentary. Matter of fact, maybe I can put it over here, do a little switching around, and here we go. Uh, the words of King Lemuel. Um, as with Augur in Proverbs chapter 30, we don't know anything about King Lemuel. He is not in any recorded list of the kings of Judah and Israel, so he was probably a pagan king who put his trust in Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, and through the fear of the Lord, learned wisdom. The name Lemuel means belonging to God. There was no king of Israel, Judah, with this name, so either it was a foreign king or it's a pen name for the author. Uh, several older commentators in Jewish legends often say Lemuel, the one belonging to God, was Solomon himself and his mother was Bathsheba. Well, possibly so, but I hope that gives you a little bit of clue um, we don't really know who Lemuel was. Get into my commentary on Proverbs chapter 31. You can dig a little deeper on that. Possibly it's a reference to Solomon, sort of a code name for him, but not necessarily so. All right, last question in our lightning round comes from Matt, who says, Shalom, Pastor. Shalom, Matt. What is the basic teaching of those who don't believe in the pre-trib rapture? Well, Matt, the main objections to the preacher rapture are uh, it's novel. In other words, it's new. It hasn't been historically taught. And it's escapism. Those are the two most frequent objections I hear to the pre-tribulation rapture. It's novel, new, in other words. And it's not what the church has historically believed. And uh, it's escapism. May I just say, Neither one of those objections is biblical. Just to say it plain, neither one of those objections is biblical. So um, there are biblical objections that people make to the pre-tribulation rapture idea. Uh, you can find a video on our YouTube channel, uh, Why I Believe in the Pre-Tribulation Rapture. And I just simply uh, spell out my case for it there. But the two most frequent arguments against the pre-tribulation rapture that I hear are not biblical arguments at all. They're arguments that it's a new teaching 
and that it leads to escapism. So that's how I would say it, Matt. Hey, everybody, thank you for joining us today on our Q&A. I've had a wonderful time, even though I got to say we had a rough start. I think we've learned a little something. I'll get to that and try to tighten up the things. But thank you for joining us today. And God willing, and if I live, I'll be back with you next Thursday for another Q&A. I really, really hope that you can join us. It's a wonderful time that we have together here on Thursdays. I don't know if it's evening. Maybe it's Friday morning for some of you here on the West Coast of the United States. It's a little bit after one o'clock in the afternoon, but so pleased that you could join us. God bless you, and thank you, thank you for joining up with us. Bye-bye. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.